0: Good morning, LBC. Good morning. It is good to be here. Uh, it is good to see you. Uh, for those who may not know me or who may be new, my name is Jonathan. I'm on staff here at the church. Um, Pastor Caleb is not here today because he is currently preaching at a church in New Jersey that needed a pulpit supply. So before we begin, we'll pray for him. So you know what that means. You're, you're kind of stuck with me. Um, In all seriousness, it is a privilege to be able to proclaim the Word of God to you today. So please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for all that you do. You are good. You are kind. You are merciful. And we know, Lord, that when we sit under your Word, it is you speaking to us, and may we be transformed by it, and may you also help me to preach it. And I also pray for Pastor Caleb as he is either going to or currently preaching, and I pray that you may strengthen him where he is and that the people there may be transformed by your word. Please help us this morning. In your son's name, I pray. Amen. Guinness Book of World Records. I'm sure that everyone in this room has heard about it, talked about it, or researched different world records that have been broken at least one time in your life. The world's tallest man, the world's fastest man, the oldest woman in space, the first functional Lego prosthetic arm, world's longest mustache, the world's heaviest twins, and many, many more. In 2011, a man set a world record of riding a motorcycle up to 300 miles per hour on a 1.5 mile runway. And breaking that record was not enough for his craving. He didn't want to stop there. And for the next two years, he spent time modifying his bike to try to make it lighter, increasing the horsepower and enhancing the aerodynamics so that he could break his own record. In July 2013, he was on the runway again with the expectation to break his own record. And as he was driving and riding his motorcycle, when he reached 200 miles per hour, he lost control of his motorcycle, which led to a terrible accident. He later died in the hospital due to his injuries. In those years of his life, he lived to break records. And unfortunately, he died to take none of those records with him. That is a very sad thing, to live for something that eventually will be left behind. And this is one extreme example of what our human nature tends to do in our lives. We tend to live for things we are ambitious about. Uh, We we think that will bring satisfaction to us, things that we we think will make us happy, only to face the reality that they will all be left behind. There is only one person we can live for that we will gain more of when we die, which is Christ. And that is the main point of today's sermon. To live is Christ, and to die is gain, which we will find in Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 to 27. And I'll give you a few seconds to get there. Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 to 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So today I have three very simple, easy to remember points for you. Point number one: to live is Christ. Point number two: to die is gain. And point number three: consider Christ. Point number one: to live is Christ. Point number two: to die is gain. And point number three, consider Christ. Now let's jump into point one, to live as Christ. Now to truly feel the impact of this statement, it is necessary for us to go through a, a brief biography of the life of Paul. Beginning in Acts 13, Paul was sent out as a missionary by the church in Antioch. And right after in Acts 14, Paul was stoned by the Jewish people who were persecuting him. And the Bible says that, it, that Paul was stoned so bad that they had to drag his body out of the city because they thought that he was dead. In Acts 6, 16, Paul is thrown into a Philippian jail where he was bound by his head. In Acts 17, Paul goes to Thessalonica and some Jews gather up a mob to try and kill him. And Paul escapes to Berea where another mob is gathered to try and kill him. In Acts 18, Paul is severely discouraged to the point of wanting to give up. In Acts 19, another riot is stirred against Paul and he is forced to watch two of his his disciples be dragged by the mob. In Acts 20, Paul gives a farewell speech to his close friends and brothers who have been by him side by side knowing that he will probably not see their face again. In Acts 21, Paul is arrested. And from Acts 22 to Acts 28, Paul has to go before governors, rulers to plead his case. There are plots to kill him. He was physically beat by a mob. He was falsely accused of things that he didn't do. He was shipwrecked and forced to swim to an island. He was bitten by a venomous snake. And then he is placed under house arrest. He also told the Corinthian church that there were times he felt like he received a death sentence from everything that happened to him. And he also told them that he received 39 lashes on five different occasions, three times he was beaten with rods, countless beatings, often near death, three times he was adrift and lost at sea day and night. He suffered from hunger and thirst. He was exposed to the cold, and he faced several different types of danger. And Paul was writing to the Philippians while he was in jail. This might seem like a lot of unnecessary information, but when you take it all of this into consideration, it's crazy to see Paul's response to all of this suffering. How can someone who has gone through that much suffering, who has never caught a break in life, Who is now probably disabled somehow, still be able to say, "For me to live is Christ." How is Paul, after all of these things, able to that he endured, able to muster the words to say, "For me to live is Christ." What does living for Christ even mean? When Paul says that for him to live is Christ, he means that life means Christ. And Paul means that every waking moment that he is alive, every fiber of his body will be directed at knowing Christ, suffering for Christ, sacrificing for Christ, living for Christ, and being strengthened by Christ. All of Paul's life will be occupied with Christ. Everything that he, he has done is inspired and done for Christ. Everything he suffers is for Christ, and his hope is Christ. All of Paul's strengths, all of his affections, all of his love, all of his mind will be directed and occupied by Christ. And Paul knows that Christ is the only one who gives purpose and direction to his life. Gerald Hawthorne says that Paul views his life and time as totally determined and controlled by his own love for and commitment to Christ. Before coming on staff here at LBC, I used to work as an aircraft mechanic and there was a specific certification that I wanted to go go for. But in order to get the certification, it was going to be very difficult because both the practical and the written exams are extremely uh, difficult to pass. So I remember I was talking with the, the quality inspector about it. Uh, he used to be a marine. and He used to work on aircraft, aircrafts in the military. And I remember exactly the words that he told me. He said, if you want to pass those tests, you need to eat, sleep, and breathe aviation. And what he meant is that all of, his, all of my energy in every waking moment had to be devoted to, for, to studying and practicing for the exams if I truly wanted to pass. Now, Paul knew that he needed to eat, sleep, and breathe Christ. Every waking moment needed to be devoted to the purposes of Christ in his life. All of his life was to live for the glory of Christ. It was Paul's devotion and love towards Christ that helped him to go through everything that he, had, that he went through. Like, can you imagine the permanent injuries that Paul sustained? I mean, it says that he was stoned so bad that they thought that he was dead. Being beaten that many times? I mean, he had to have some physical altercations happen to his body. And back then, there was no ibuprofen. There was no tylen- Tylenol. There was no epidurals. No, Paul wasn't at the doctor saying, yeah, doc, I got that sciatic pain going down my leg, so shoot me up with the epidurals." Paul had to live with those sustained injuries for the rest of his life. And every moment after Paul was sent out as a missionary was filled with sufferings, difficulties, and he was reminded daily from the pain that he felt. Yet, the disposition of Paul's heart is to say, for me to live is Christ." It wasn't, God, why are you doing this to me? God, why do you not show me favor? It wasn't, God, why do you not give me what I'm asking for? The disposition of his heart was, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Because my life means living for Christ. No matter the lot, no matter the circumstances, Paul's heart was deeply devoted to live for Christ. One of the things I enjoy is listening to podcasts of guys who are retired military, uh, one, because they have cool stories, two, because they have tactical knowledge and good resources, and three, because they have some good practical wisdom and being disciplined. But one of the things that is so common among, among these guys is the mindset that when you want to give up, you have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you just have to keep on pushing forward. You had to find the strength within yourself to push forward through times of difficulty. And honestly speaking, I find that to be very shallow because what happens when you truly have no more strength? What happens when you just give up? In Paul's case, there was no possible way for him to pull, up, to pull himself up. He called himself weak. But he said, in that weakness, I am made strong through Christ. And at the end of the day, Christ was his hope. In verse 19, Paul says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. If you notice here, the last part of this phrase where he says, this will turn out for my deliverance, it is a direct quote from the Greek Old Testament where Paul is actually quoting from the book of Job. And he quotes from Job verse 13 to uh, verse 16, which says, This will be my salvation, that the godless shall not come before God. And even more interesting is that the the verse before that in Job 13, 15, Job says, though he slay me, I will hope in him. So Paul is a well-studied man. I mean, he used to be a Pharisee, Pharisees of Pharisees, and he knows the book of Job thoroughly. And it does not surprise me, not one bit, that in the moment of severe suffering, Paul goes to the scripture to read about a man who suffers immensely. And Paul goes to read about Job, someone who lost everything, who had all of his children taken away, whose body becomes sick with nasty sores, who has friends that bring him down with arrogant assumptions about God instead of being slow to speak on behalf of God's sovereignty. Paul reads about how Job, through the time that he suffered, was waiting in sorrow to be vindicated by God and how at the end of it all, Job was able to know God in a much deeper and satisfying way than if God would have just left Job alone with all of his stuff. He put Job through suffering to show him a deeper side of a benevolent God. And that is the hope of Paul, that in his suffering, he is able to say, For me to live is Christ. <clears throat> he is able to say, I can know him deeper and in a much more satisfying way. Paul's heart was grit. By God's word and all of his promises. The Holy Spirit is working in Paul to remind him of scripture, and that is why Paul is able to say, For me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. That causes Paul to have a posture of his heart that is inclined to know that Christ will be honored by his life or death and that he will not be put to shame. In verse 20, he says, It is my eager expectation. Now, there's a specific picture that Paul is portraying here. So let's pretend right now there is a plane or there is a helicopter that is flying on top of us and you want to look at it. Your instinct is not going to look forward. Your instinct is going to lift your head up to try to see that helicopter. And what this means is that your head is going to be outstretched and your head is going to be looking up where you're not going to be paying attention what happens to the right of you or what happens to the left of you because you will be so... um, Constrained by looking upward. And that is what Paul is portraying when he says, My eager expectation. In the Greek, it means having an outstretched head, where Paul has his focus on what is above, which is Christ. The posture of Paul's heart is one that is looking towards heaven, that is not worried about what is happening around him. He knows that he will not be ashamed of all that he has endured because Christ was being honored. And he was going to be honored whether he kept on living or whether he died. Christ had become everything to him. And he knew that Christ would vindicate him. And that is why in Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 to 14, Paul says, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is it that you hear echoing behind that verse? You can hear Paul saying, for me to live is Christ. That leads us to point number two, to die is gain. So please look at the scripture with me. It says, Paul says in verses 21 to 23, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. At which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two, and my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. When I first read this, my first thought is, Paul, are you okay? Are you good? Why are you talking crazy like you want to end your life? Talking about which one I shall choose, I cannot tell. Paul, you need a hug? You need some loving? I got you. Sometimes, When I'm around people, I say, for me to live is Christ, and I really emphasize on the die is gain part. And then Francesco looks at me, and he says, I'm worried about you. (laughs) At first, it might seem like Paul is so eager to see Christ that he is willing to take his life into his own hands. But that is not what the text is saying. Given the context of Philippians, we need to keep in mind that in the moment that Paul was writing this letter, he was being faced with two things that as humans, we all fear. He was being faced with imprisonment, which he was in prison, and he was being faced with death. When Paul is writing to the Philippians, he is under house arrest. And the reason why he is under house arrest is because he is waiting to go before the Roman emperor to have his case heard. We just finished the book of Acts, so we know that Paul had requested to be sent to the emperor so that he could plead his case before him. The big issue with that was the person who the emperor was at the time. The person who Paul was going to go before was Nero. And if you know history well, history portrays Nero to be a raging lunatic who was not given into logic or reason, but was emotionally unstable, who was cruel, and who had no mercy or sympathy for anyone but himself. In 64 AD, there was a huge fire that destroyed two-thirds of Rome, and Nero blamed the Christians for that. And after that fire, fire, he hotly pursued the Christians. And when he got his hands on some of them, he would tie them up to the stake. And at night, he would use them as nightlights when he lit them on fire. And the other Christians were thrown to wild animals where they were torn to pieces. So this is the person that Paul is supposed to stand in front of. So Paul knows very well that there is a reality of possible death that is lingering over his head because Nero could have chosen to kill him at any moment. And that is why Paul says, yet which one I shall choose I cannot tell. What Paul is saying is that he is not trying to take things into his own hands. He is not choosing death. But the way that it is translated in the Greek, it should say what will happen to me has not been revealed to me yet. Paul does not know if he will actually die, but he knows that the probability of him dying is very high and very likely. And that brings us to ask a very necessary question. How should Christians think about death? Should we be afraid of it? Should we be excited for it? Should we desire it? The book of Ecclesiastes can help us to answer this question. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 1 says, A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. The person who wrote Ecclesiastes calls himself the preacher in the beginning. And what the preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes is not saying is that he hates when babies are born... But what he is saying is that there is more wisdom we can find at a funeral than in a hospital when a baby is born. One commentator said that death is an evangelist. And according to the preacher, death is something that can teach us some profound lessons. And that is why in verse 4, which Chris read for us earlier, he says, The heart of the wise is in the heart of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. When we look at death or we go to a funeral, it reminds us that we will not live forever. But think about why the preacher says this. When a baby is born, what people think about is the future with that child, what that child will grow up to be, what will be their career, what things they will accomplish. But with death, people think about what was done in that life, what good things and bad things were done. And it helps us to see the fulfillment of life and helps us to soberly examine our own lives. And the reason why we need death to bring us sobriety is because with our sinful natures as humans, we tend to live for other things and idolize those things. We tend to live for promotion. We tend to live for power. We tend to live for pleasure. We tend to live for recognition. We live for convenience and comfort. We live for sex. We live for money. We live live to be the best. We live to prove something to others. We want to be uh, we want people to think of us as the boss. We like to have status. We like to indulge in our sins. We live to pursue all these things that our sinful hearts craves and we live for it only to leave all of those things behind when we die. So when we think about death, what it does is that it actually helps us to pump the brakes and to slow down and to be reminded that one day we will die. That is why the Bible teaches us to number our days. Because life is a gift from God, and at any moment, it can be taken away. During the pandemic, my mother had gotten really sick, and it wasn't COVID. It was a very long year of us taking her to the doctor, trying to find a diagnosis. And just to give you a picture of what was going on, we didn't know she kind of just like lost her mind, stopped eating. There was a lot of stuff going on. And there were moments where she would look at me and she would say, you're not my son. And there were moments at one o'clock in the morning where she would knock on my door very loudly and say, whoever you are, you're not my son. So there was something going on there. Both me and my dad still had to go work to work in the pandemic. And there was really nobody to take care of her. So I remember one day I was speaking on the phone with my uncle who lives in Guatemala because that's where all of our family is. And I remember talking with him, trying to figure out what we were going to do, if it was better to send her there because there was a whole bunch of people who could take care of her or for her just to stay here. At the end of it all, she she ended up staying and by God's grace, she is 100% better. She is back to normal. She is great. But the uncle that I spoke on the phone with passed away suddenly. And it caught us all by surprise. And I still remember the last conversation that I had with him. And if I would have known that it was the last time I would speak with him, I probably would have stayed on the phone a little bit longer. The person that we thought was going to die didn't, and the person that no one was worried about was the one who died. That is because we do not know what will happen the day of tomorrow, and we need to learn to number our days because life is a temporary gift from God. It could be tomorrow, it could be next week, it could be a few years from now, but one day we will die, and that is a guarantee. And because we will die, death can help us to examine what we are truly living for and put things into proper perspective. When we look at death, it reminds us that all that we are pursuing, all that we are living for, for, all of our ambitions will be left behind, and you will take none of them with you. That is why Paul has a proper biblical perspective of death. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul is not actively pursuing death. It does not seem like he is afraid of it. He doesn't hate life because he knows it's a gift from God. The way that Paul views death is that he is expecting it, knowing that it will come for him, if not through Nero, then by other means. But he also rejoices not that he is going to die, but that he is going to be much closer and much nearer to Christ the Savior. Now, since Paul is aware that death was possibly near, it helped him to know what to live for. Paul does not view death like the pagans of his time as merely an escape from suffering. And I am not saying that it is bad to think, to, uh, a bad thing to want to go to heaven because there will be no more suffering. I mean, the last chapter of Revelation says that there will be no more tears, there will be no more pain, there will be no more suffering, and that is such a beautiful thing that God will make all things right through Christ. But in this text, in this text, Paul desires to depart. Paul's desire to depart goes so much deeper than a desire to just escape suffering. Paul's desire to depart is fueled by a deep longing to be with Christ. An escape from suffering is not his motive. Being with Christ is his motive, and there is a big difference. And that is because someone can desire to, to die trying to escape suffering in their life, but that is like trying to escape the sovereign hand of God, which we saw last week, is not possible. But Paul teaches us a desire to depart should be fueled by, by a longing to meet our Savior face to face. And that is why he says that he is hard-pressed between the two. Paul feels like he's kind of stuck between two walls. One is continuing on in life and working and laboring for the gospel. And the other desire is that the Lord take him so that he could be fully exposed in, exposed in glory to his Savior he is stuck between two sides because he knows what awaits him after he departs from this world. Spurgeon once said, to die as a believer is to give up all of your possessions, but to die, to die as an unbeliever is to give up all your possessions, but to die as a believer is to gain your greatest possession. In Psalm sixteen five, the psalmist says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Brothers and sisters, in this life, the Lord is our portion. And even in death, the Lord is our portion in an even greater, more magnificent way. Because there will be nothing standing between me and seeing the face of my Savior. And that is why Paul says, for me to die is gain. So, how should we as believers think about death? Death death is something that we should expect. Because the Bible teaches us to number our days. But it is also something that, we can, that can cause us to rejoice. And we should rejoice not that life will end, but that Christ will be fully revealed to us on that day. Life is a gift from God that needs to be rightly valued. And we should never, ever actively pursue death by our own means. But if we take Paul's words into consideration, that means that there should be an awareness that life with Christ is not destroyed by death But life in Christ is fully revealed when we cross that threshold. And the fact of having Christ revealed to us is what we should rejoice in. And death is not to be feared because Christ conquered it when he rose from the grave. So when we die, there will be no more barrier between us and Christ, our Savior. We will no longer be walking by faith because our faith will become sight. And when we die as believers, that marks the beginning of eternal life with our Savior. It marks the beginning of a life of deep communion with Christ that will last forever. There's no end to it. And Paul says to die is gain because he knows that when he closes his eyes and he leaves this world, and when he opens his eyes, he will behold the face of Jesus Christ with the words that say, Well done, good and faithful servant, enter into my rest. Death can be a scary thing. But when you put it into proper perspective, it is the beginning of beautiful, eternal life with our Savior. After death, the Lord will be our portion fully without hindrance or obstacles. What is it that you desire? Do you desire this? Do you long to be with Christ? Are you longing for that greater portion? Now, I just want to very quickly say if you have not repented of your sins and you have, believed in your, if you have not believed in Christ, this promise is not for you. So don't feel any comfort. But I do want you to know that there is still hope for you. So please keep on listening. Point number three, consider Christ. So what do we do with all of this? Some might be saying, well, I'm not in jail like Paul was, nor am I facing imminent death that I know of. How does Paul's statement to live is Christ and to die is gain able to apply to us now? Well, I would ask you, what are you living for? What is the model of your life? As one commentator said, do you say for me to live is money and to die is to leave it all behind? Do you say for me to live is fame and to die is to be forgotten? Do you say for me to live is power and to die is to lose all of it? Do you say for me to live his possessions and to die is to take none of them with me?" Most of us would never verbally say these things, but we do say it very loudly in the way that we live. What does your life show? Are you like the man that I mentioned at the beginning that lived his life only to break his record of riding his motorcycle only to die trying? We live in New York, probably one of the most ambitious places in the world. Everyone is always in a rush. Everyone has a million goals. Everyone has somewhere to be. Everyone has promotions to gain. Everyone has their weekends that they cherish to do fun things. We like to pretend that once we accomplish all that we desire, then we will seek after Christ because we like to think that tomorrow is promised. Pastor David Gibson says in his book, Living Life Backwards, it's a commentary on the book of, of, of Ecclesiastes, And it's a very extensive quote, but it should be up there so you can follow along. David Gibson says, we are not God. We are not in control. And we will not live forever. We will die. But we avoid this reality by playing, let's pretend. Let's pretend that if we get the promotion or see our church grow or bring up good children, we'll feel significant and leave a lasting legacy behind us. Let's pretend that if we move to a new house, we'll be happier and we'll never want to move again. Let's pretend that if we end one relationship and start a new one, we won't ever feel trapped. Let's pretend that if we were married or weren't married, we would be content. Let's pretend that if we had more money, we would be satisfied. Let's pretend that if we go through this week's pile of washing, dirty diapers, and shopping lists, and school runs, and busy evenings, next week will be quieter. Let's pretend that time is always on our side to do the things that we want to and become the people we want to be. Let's pretend that we can break the cycle of repetition and finally arrive in a world free of, from weariness. We long for change in a world of permanent repetition and we dream of how we can interrupt it. And I close quote. We like to think that we have all the time in the world to pursue these things that we think will satisfy us, forgetting that Christ is the only one who can satisfy us in this life and in the next. But how many times do you actually consider Christ within the week? Is Christ just an afterthought when we are when you are on your way to church? I want to encourage you today consider Christ. Consider what he has done for you. Consider the gospel. Consider that you and I are sinners, and that means that we are enemies of God because we have sinned against the holy God. And consider the one who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but put on a human nature so that he could come and walk among his creation. And as he lived here, he lived a perfect life. He committed no sin, but he perfectly fulfilled the law of God, and that made him into a perfect sacrifice that led him to give his own life on the cross to appease the wrath of God on behalf of those who repent and turn from their sins and turn to Christ. The Bible says that if you do this, you will be saved. So if you are here today and you have not turned to Christ, like I said, there is hope for you. You can repent of your sins. You can turn to Christ. You can see what Christ has done on the cross. And he is willing and he is able to save you. If you are a believer, I urge you to consider Christ in the gospel because the gospel is not just for unbelievers. It is just as much for you. You cannot outgrow the gospel. It is the center point of all of scripture. So consider the love of God displayed in sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. Consider how Christ has covered us with his righteousness and took us from being enemies of God to children of God. Consider that he laid down his life for you. Consider that we did not deserve to have our sins washed away by his sacrifice, but for some reason, according to God's secret will, he has had mercy on us. LBC, are you considering Christ in the manner of your life? LBC, are you considering Christ in the manner of your life? LBC, are you considering Christ in the manner of your life? Christian who are here, are you considering Christ in the manner of your life? Even though none of us are in jail waiting to plead our case before the emperor, it does not mean that we cannot live for Christ now. And I really don't want you to think that living for Christ means leaving your job to do full-time ministry because that's, that's not what it means. To say to live is Christ and to die is gain is a posture of the heart towards every aspect of life. You can live for Christ in every aspect of life if your motive is to glorify him through it. Paul says that one of the reasons why it was better for him to live is so that he can go to the church and he can help them grow so that they can help glorify Christ. In the mundane of your life, you can find ways to live for Christ. Back in 2021... One of my homies was getting married to a girl that lived in Texas. And I was one of the groomsmen, so I, I flew down to Texas for a week. And just a side note, I bought like, a really nice cowboy hat from there, and I've been wanting to wear it here at the church. But I know this church is not big enough for two cowboy, for one cowboy, and Wally already claimed that position. So I was down there with my friends having a good time. Uh, I was loving Texas. I was loving the culture. But the one thing that impressed me the most was the way the family of my friend's now wife is. Her father is a very strong and faithful believer, and he works as a brain surgeon for babies, which he studied while he was in the Navy. He is the head surgeon in the hospital, and hospitals from all over the country call him for counsel. So as you may rightly assume, they were very well off. They lived on eight acres of land. They had cows, they had goats, they had chickens, they had dogs, they had a big house. And someone who lived on the property to take care of the land. I mean, he probably had everything that I have, all I've ever wanted in my life. And maybe one day I'll buy gold and leave it at the Parsonage or something. (laughs) But what impressed me was not how much they had, but in the way that they lived. This man and his wife had two biological sons and 13 adopted daughters. Some of them were from Asia that were rescued from catastrophes. Two of them were from Haiti that lost their family in the earthquake that happened. Some of of them local from the area that had been abandoned. It encouraged me so much that instead of being worried about saving money to retire, or having a lot more nicer things, or having nobody else to worry about, this man takes his resources to spend on those who who are in great need. He will probably be taking care of those kids well into his elderly stages, And most of the people his age will probably be enjoying their retirement. But there was was so much joy that that man had because I do not believe that he lived for the things that he had, but he lived for Christ. And because of his generosity, these 13 girls were exposed to the gospel of Christ and are able to grow up in a Christian household. This man worked his way up to the top. He is very successful. But I can tell that the posture of his heart was one that said, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. I could tell that he has such a big servant's heart. It is very possible to be successful, to have a good career, to have goals in life, as long as those things don't hold the affections of our heart that are supposed to be geared towards Christ. Living for Christ means that he is all of life for you. It means that all of your deepest affections and longings will be geared towards loving him more growing in your devotion towards him, growing in holiness and a desire to glorify him through all of the things that you do and striving to serve others regarding their interests far above your own and faithfully serving the church. We can live for Christ by spending ourselves on others and by doing so, you are imitating the image of Christ. Consider your heart for Christ. May he have all of the deepest affections May all of your strength and all of your might be geared towards loving him more. May he hold your deepest thoughts of meditation day by day. And may you be able to consider the ways that you live for Christ now. Paul went through a lot of suffering, more than, pro- more than any of us would probably have in any moment. There were moments where he might have not understood why things were the way that they were. But he still said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul had a love for Christ that ran deeper than love for his own life, which is why he continued on laboring and working and living for Christ. He knew that he would not be ashamed, but that Christ would vindicate him. In this life, we may never know why certain things happen. There might be times where it seems like God is silent. Moments where it feels like he is very far from us. But I want to assure you that he is there through every single tear, through every single difficulty, through every single trial, through every single hurtful circumstance. He is there. But remember that the Lord is our portion in this life and the next. Through all the suffering, may you be able to consider Christ. When everything seems to be going wrong and there's a lot of pain, we are still to live for Christ. And when things seem to be going well and it seems like everything is peaceful, we are still meant to be living for Christ. Now, I have two very, very short application points for you today. Application point number one, be sober-minded. As Christians, we are to be sober-minded in the way that we live, and that means thinking intentionally and honestly about our lives. What, you, what have you been living for that has taken up Your affections and has been putting, has put living for Christ in the back seat of the car. Examine your heart with scripture and pray that God may help you to navigate through those things which take up all of your strength, all of your thoughts, all of your ambitions, and pray that He may help you to orient your affections back on Christ and the gospel. One day we will die. So that is something that should remind us to think about what really matters in life. What kind of legacy are you desiring to leave? One that merely breaks records or one that is gospel-centered and saturated with a deep devotion towards Christ? Brothers and sisters, be sober-minded about your life. Application point two, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. In verse 27, Paul tells us, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul is not saying that you can work your way to the gospel. Instead, what he is saying is to let your life mirror the gospel that you have believed. To let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel means that you take all of all that you see in the gospel of Christ. And you strive to live accordingly to it. And Paul tells the Ephesians the same thing. He equates walking in a manner worthy of the gospel to be walking in humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, being eager to maintain unity. He tells the Philippians the same thing, to strive side by side in one mind and in one spirit for the faith of the gospel. Letting your manner of life be worthy of the gospel also means laboring and working for the gospel. Are you letting your manner of life be worthy of the gospel? Are you faithfully serving? Do you faithfully have your affections on Christ? That will look different for all people, depending on your giftings and your abilities, but you can look for ways to serve in the areas that are needed. The driving force behind letting your life be worthy of the gospel means having a posture of the heart that says, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So please pray with me. Lord, I thank you for your word. And even though I may be an imperfect vessel, Lord, your word is perfect. And your word cuts deeper uh, to the soul and to the heart. So I pray, Lord, that we may meditate on whether we are living for you or not. We can put up a front towards towards everybody in this room. But, Lord, we cannot put up a front towards you. Because you know the deepest desires of our hearts. So I pray that we may examine ourselves and truly know... If we are in you, if we are living for you, and we desire to be with you, please help us. In your son's name I pray. Amen.